Well, it's good to be with you as always. And I'm um, uh, very happy to be able to be here on such a very non-Southern Californian day. Uh, at, um, I grew up in Alabama and, and it rained, uh, particularly in the summertime, it would rain two or three times a week. Uh, sometimes the sheets of rain. And uh, now I've actually uh, become acclimated to being a Southern Californian. Any rain freaks me out now. And uh, so uh, it, was, it, was, uh, it was nice driving here, and I suspect it would be fine driving back. Um, one of the most significant themes uh, in the scriptures is also uh, one of the most uh, sort of unusually contentious uh, concepts uh, within uh, the church. Interestingly enough, this isn't a contentious concept like um, you've seen sort of the political polarization of the United States and particularly the evangelical church. That get really, really hostile, really ugly. I long for the days when people would just argue about things like the Sabbath uh, yeah, and, uh, or whether you could speak in tongues or not. It's like that was, I feel like we were all really kinder back then about those things. Uh, and, um, but the Sabbath is uh, one of those things that uh, has a multiplicity of sort of approaches to it from the vantage point of how Christians kind of consider it. Some Christians, when you talk to them, will still sort of hold to a Friday sundown to Saturday sundown, like strict Old Testament kind of stuff. Uh, in fact, there's such a thing as Seventh-day Baptists, which I think is an extraordinary uh, historical problem, uh, but, but uh, still, you know, uh, it's um, you know, I, I can uh, again, I can, I can, I can be pretty forgiving when it comes to, uh, to things like that. Uh, you could be like my grandmother, who was a hardcore professing Sabbatarian, practicing. I'm not as sure, but but professing. Like we would go to restaurants on Sunday. We didn't mind making other people work, uh, but but um, but we but we would. My grandmother would like cook like a banshee up until like 11.59, 59 seconds on Saturday night. And she was, I, I remember watching her just, uh, just cranking out the chicken and dumplings, throwing the dumplings into the, you know, the pot, you know, stirring them up. And then as soon as like 11.59 with 59 seconds, uh, you know, hits, like throws the tongs up. She's done. And it's like a, watching a rodeo cowboy, uh, you know, in, in some regard. Uh, and, and then she was done until Monday morning. No cooking. Um, it, was, it was an interesting approach. And I have to admit that, I mean, I was, I was sort of along those lines myself growing up, a loose sort of Sabbatarian. Sunday, in my mind, was the Sabbath of the, uh, the, the Christian. Whereas Saturday, Friday, Sunday, and Saturday, Sunday was the Sabbath of the Jew. Now, Sunday was the Sabbath of the Christian. Um, it was... It was one of the many things. I've got a list of things that I grew up believing that when I then started reading the Bible was shocked to find out that I couldn't find it. Uh, and that uh, this was one of those things. And there are only two places, actually, in the New Testament uh, epistles that address the Sabbath. You've got Jesus proving who he is by saying things like, I'm Lord of the Sabbath which would have been in the first century talking to Jewish people, saying that about yourself would have just been completely socially inappropriate. Nobody would have, nobody would have appreciated that uh, unless you actually 
were the Lord of the Sabbath, which, of course, in their minds would never have been the case with someone who had skin. And, uh, and so this, uh, this kind of thing was extraordinary. But it's really interesting when you open up the epistles and ask the question, hey, was Jeff's grandmother right? I mean, is that the way churches work? And you've got this really interesting... Uh, you know, Paul is really the, the guy that, that kind of addresses a lot of these things oftentimes. Paul says... This in Colossians 2.16. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. He says, don't let anybody judge you whether you keep these things or not. Don't let anybody judge on what you eat and drink. Don't let anybody judge you on these things. These things are not for us to judge each other by. This is the kind of stuff that is located, for Paul anyway, in his past in Judaism. But then the writer of Hebrews, who I don't think is Paul, says in verse 9, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. A Sabbath rest for the people of God. So, simultaneously in the New Testament, don't be judged by this. This is not something you've got to have. And then... But there is one. There is a Sabbath. So what does this mean? How does this, uh, how does this, uh, wh- how does this work? Well, I think the, the trick to figuring it out is embedded in the text that we have today. Chapter 3, verse 1, all the way down to 4.13. I'm just going to read, though, a, a, a few things here. Hopefully, that uh, I think will kind of elucidate this all for us. Uh, So in the context of Hebrews chapter 3, you've got the writer of Hebrews taking the first couple of chapters and introducing the clear and absolute superiority of Jesus. Superiority of Jesus to the angels. Superiority of Jesus to anything else that they can consider. Superiority of Jesus to the patriarchs. All of it. He's, He's clearly trying to induce his hearers into believing that Jesus is, in fact, the core sum of all that they've been raised to believe. He's more than likely writing to Jewish Christians, which is why in chapter 1, where he just unpacks the deity of Jesus, he just laces it with the Psalms. He points at Jesus and uses Psalms like Psalm 102, 25-27, You, O Lord, are from all eternity. All the heavens will just be rolled up like a garment, but not you. He's talking to Jesus in this text. He wants the hearers to know that Christ is, in fact, all-surpassingly God. That they didn't waste their time growing up in Judaism reading the Old Testament. That this is what is in the Old Testament. This is the culmination, the fruition of everything they've ever known. It's Jesus. Not their own ethnicity, not their nationality. It's Jesus. And so as he comes to chapter 3, he says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just like Moses was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. If you're a Jew, more glory than Moses is like, Not a thing, except here. If you're a Jewish believer, more glory than Moses is an easy thing. 
Of course, this is Jesus. This is the actual architect of the house, not someone who lives in it. And so the writer unpacks it, and then he says something really intriguing in verse 7. He says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test, saw my works for 40 years. And therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they will always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, here's the key word, they shall not enter my rest. So what was it about that text that this writer thought was so substantial to this discussion. He's unpacking the concept of rest, unpacking the concept that will culminate in him saying in verse 9 and 10 that Christ, in fact, is the Sabbath rest for the people of God. Look down in verse uh, chapter 4. Look at verse, uh, beginning with verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. That's, again, a reference back to Psalm 95, which was read for us. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For, or because, whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So all of this ties together in the minds of, uh, of this writer, which, which means that he knows he's talking to people who know their Old Testament. So in order for us to really get a grasp of Sabbath, we do have to get a grasp of what would they have thought? I mean, everybody has cultural baggage. I'm from the Deep South, and I was raised with, when, when the word G-O-D got floated, I was raised with this compilation of, of ideas that, that associate, was associated with that. For example, I, I, when I, even uh, when I went to college and became an atheist, I would have, say, I would have never said to you, I don't believe in gods. I would have said, I don't believe in God. And if you had countered and said, you mean like in Islam? I would go, no. <laughs> so, I, mean, I, didn't even, I wasn't nuanced enough to even know that. Uh, no, I, I, um, I, mean, I meant like in the Bible. That was, I was just simply saying something that was kind of cultural. You know, I, was, I really was saying I didn't believe what my parents believed. I was just laden with cultural ideas. And everybody is. You are. One of, the, one of the difficult things about being a Christian is parsing constantly what you've been handed culturally or what you continue to get handed culturally from what's actually in the Bible. It's, it's, it's super hard. And it's not just hard for people from the Deep South. I realize that I'm an easy guy to target when it comes to, oh, yeah, you were raised in Alabama. Of course, it's difficult for you. Uh, but, but also in California, I can't tell you how uh, significantly difficult it looks to me for someone who was raised as a good old-fashioned, you know, Jesus people, California person after the 1960s, who is laden with Americana, mistaking it for Christianity. And there's no paganism that is more dangerous than a paganism that thinks it's Christian. This, this idea, then, is really important. What did they think? So a couple of different portraits for the Sabbath. First of all, one you really know is from Genesis, chapter 2, verse 2, right? First of all, the Sabbath isn't used there. It's the seventh day. I'll get to that in a second. But the seventh day is what the Sabbath becomes a little bit later on in the, in the Torah, 
But, the, but, but here is God, after creating everything he's created, it says he rests. Now, I'll be honest with you, when I was a little kid, I thought that meant, of course he does. Good grief. I mean, I, I, I cut the yard and I've got to rest. I can't imagine, like, creating the universe. Of course you've got to rest, right? I mean, it's uh, got to get some you know, energy back. But that's not what God is doing. When in the ancient Near East, in creation narratives, when uh, typically there was always, creation always happened with the multiplicity of gods clashing in war, and one of those gods would win the war, and after he won the war, he would create by typically carving up the bodies of the other deities, and then he would sit on his throne. Sitting was the showcase of authority uh, in, in the ancient world. So when God says, so God, who has no gods to, to compete with, just speaks everything to existence, when he sits, when he rests, it is him establishing his absolute sovereignty over everything. Everything material, everything temporal, everything functional, everything is under his rule. That's the, that's the portrait. So Sabbath is a portrait of God's absolute, unquestioned sovereignty. The other portrait, though, is even more brilliant, I think, in, in large part. The very first time that you ever see the word Sabbath in the Bible is in Exodus chapter 16. And in Exodus 16, you have a group of people who've just been rescued from Egypt. They've just seen this incredible thing happen in the, sea, the Red Sea. And now they are griping because they don't have any food. This is one of the episodes that this tradition sort of alludes to in Psalm 95. The big one that it's alluding to is in Numbers 14. But this is one of them that it's kind of, they kind of allude to, is this history of Israel's just automatic forgetfulness. This is a brother uh, said a while ago, it's just incredible how easy it is to forget. It's incredible how difficult it is to remember, I mean, I don't know about you, to remember to rest in Christ. That's what we're talking about. What we're talking about today is not easy. When we get to the application section, I hope that that's, that's really lodged in your head. Hey, this isn't easy. I actually, there's something inside of me that wars against this. I want to keep tabs. I want to keep score. I'm worthy of being accepted by God because I dot, 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 or I didn't dot, 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 right? It's horrible. You're laboring against the very freedom that you have in Christ, right? It's difficult, easy to forget, and Israel forgets a lot. In Exodus chapter 16, they complain about not having food, and so God rains manna down on them and quail down on them, and then he shows them himself, physically manifests himself in Exodus 16 in this pillar of fire. And in that instruction, while they can see this powerful manifestation, he says, on the Sabbath, you will not collect food. I'll give you enough on Saturday and you'll have it all to eat. But you won't collect food. Now, let me explain something. In the ancient world, you never did that. No one ate without working hard for it. That was just a common idea. And there was no, there was no you know, BMC pho to go to. I, was, I, was, I feel like that that's the center of my universe. I love that place. And, and, um, and so, but, the, the, uh, but, but there was no such thing like that. And there was no such thing as, I mean, this is just a, our, our infrastructure is just so conceptually different. 
I'm, I, I'm on contract at California Baptist University. If, if, if school rolls around for me, and one day I get up, and I click on the news and realize that on the Disney Channel, they, they're running a Mary Poppins marathon. Mary Poppins is one of my favorite movies. And I just decide to call in sick, lay down on the couch, pop up a bag of chips and pour it on my chest and just sit there and eat while I'm watching Mary Poppins. I still eat fine. I still get paid as long as Chris Morgan doesn't find out what I'm doing. I, I, I'll, I'll just continue to get paid. It won't be, nothing, nothing will happen. In other words, I don't really have to work like that to eat. And that's why it's so hard for us to understand that in the ancient world, you got up early and you began to prep for possibly the only meal you'd have the day. It was work, all day work, but not Israel. I want you to put yourself in a position of being in an ancient society, looking in on this community like they're in a fishbowl, watching them and seeing them one day out of the week, not doing anything, and yet eating as well as you. And where did this come from? You ask them, and they would say, God divinely rains food down on us. Anyone who knows me knows that I, love, I have very big appetites. I love food. Food's one of the things I just love. My wife and I just got back from visiting Karis' older sister and brother-in-law in Malaysia. And if you've been to Malaysia, you know that Malaysia is like the best food in the world. It's incredible. I gained easy 10 pounds uh, and, and am not sorry at all. Uh, I would have sat in Malacca and drank coconut shakes until they revoked my passport. If they, if they would have let me. Uh, it was absolutely amazing. Just fantastic food. The idea of coconut shakes raining down from heaven is like, this is, I can die now. It's amazing. I mean, it is an incredible, you know, you know kind of a gift. Food raining down from heaven is something as wild to the ancient world as it is to us. I've had students who said, yeah, that's kind of stuff would happen today, though, right? Insinuating that we're just too sophisticated. I mean, and I always ask, I said, do you, do you honestly... It's always fascinating to me what people say in university settings. I, I, I don't know if these kids, did you make A's in high school? Did you, how did you get here? I, I mean, it's just stuff that they'll say, like, with, with things like this and resurrection. Uh, people believed in resurrection back then because you know, they were so unsophisticated. So you, you honestly think that people thought that people would just come back from the dead arbitrarily in the first century? I mean, that's just not, that's, that's bizarre. Uh, and then nobody, nobody thought, hey, just, I know you're sad, but give it a couple of days. Nobody ever said that, right? I mean, resurrect, when you were dead, you were dead. In the same way that if someone said, hey, you know what? We should just wait and see if God throws food out of the sky. Nobody would have said that. And yet, here's all these nations that are looking in. And God's doing this, raining food out of heaven. And they're collecting it every day. And on one day, they collect two days' worth of food, and they get up the next day. They don't work at all. They just eat and rest in the provision of God. Sabbath, two big portraits. Power of God, provision of God. Power of God, provision of God. You can see this by the way that this kind of plays itself out in the legislation in Israel. In Israel's legislation, you've got um, 
this, uh, I'm trying to look at my, uh, my time here. Uh, you've got um, the Sabbath being echoed in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 uh, in the Ten Commandments. This is Israel's constitutional literature. All other laws kind of emanate from these laws. And um, principally. And in the Sabbath in Exodus 20, the illustration Moses uses is creation, power of God. In Deuteronomy 5, the illustration Moses uses is the Exodus, provision of God and power of God, right? I mean, the Exodus is the, is the unquestionable sort of, uh, you know, root, powerful historical experience that Israel experiences. They reference it all the time, still today. And, and, um, and so you've got God uh, utilizing these illustrations in the Sabbath. So this is what they thought. When you said Sabbath, when you floated that to a, 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 a good informed Israelite, a bad informed Israelite might say, oh, Sabbath, it's the thing that makes us better than other people. That's what you see in the New Testament with Jesus, bumping into that with the Pharisees. This is, this is a sense of national, ethnic superiority is the idea of Sabbath. But if you talk to an informed Israelite, Sabbath, their eyes would probably be wide. And they would go, I'll tell you, but you're not going to believe it. It's the craziest thing. Food falls from the sky every day. And then one day, prior to the Sabbath, we get so much food that we can eat the day we get it. And we get up the next day and just start eating without ever working for it. It just comes to us. Just like our, our shoes never seem to wear out, even though we're walking around for decades in the desert. We never tire. It's crazy. Sabbath is this kind of idea. So for the Israelites, Sabbath was not a worship day. It was a sign day. It's a sign day. It was a sign of God's power, sign of God's provision, and overarching, you could say, a sign of God's goodness. It's goodness, power, and provision. This is what was the background of when you get to Hebrews 3, 7, and God so angry with the, um, the Israelites. And this is also the, the logic of why violating the Sabbath in the Old Testament was death. Like one of the most significant passages of this is Numbers chapter 15, where there's this guy, he walks out and he collects sticks on the Sabbath, and they stone him to death uh, every single semester. Hands just shoot up all over the, uh, you know, the, the, the room. They're like, he was, he was picking up sticks, Dr. Mooney? He was picking up sticks. And instead of sticks, they picked up rocks and killed it. I mean, it was bad picking up sticks. Picking up rocks, they're heavier, right? Number one. And then, and then you throw them at this one guy. And that's okay? I'm like, I totally get it. I really do. I totally get it. What you don't get is to violate God's Sabbath is to say openly, publicly, I don't buy it. I don't buy that he's that good. I don't buy that he's that powerful. And I don't buy all this provision. I don't know what this is. I keep eating. But number one, I'm sick of it. 
which got said. And number two, I just don't buy it. It's probably natural, right? It's extraordinary. Human will to believe that the world is not how God says it is. Because it's just so hard to grasp. I really do think it's where other religions kind of emerge in some very real way. Sabbath rest is this weekly sign. Numbers 15 is this, this, this moment where Israel is warned about what's about to happen to them. This young man that's killed, his father's an uh, uh, Israelite, mother's an Egyptian, but Israel has just violated the Sabbath, the, the concept of the Sabbath themselves. In Numbers 13 and 14, 12, 12 spies go into the land. They come back out. Ten spies say, we can't do it. Can't do it. Can't be done. They're too big. Too big. Too many of them. Only Joshua and Caleb said, what is it that you eat every day? Do you not remember? Do you not remember? Or do you not remember the stories of Egypt? Do you not remember? Nothing is big. Nothing is powerful. These people only think they know power. They don't have any idea what kind of power there is. We can take these guys. If we even have to throw a, 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 you know, a, a punch at all, we can take them. But Israel sided with the ten. And for 40 years, Israel got to watch that entire generation die, dropping like flies every day for 40 years. It was probably terrifying in some very real way. But it was the violation of God's goodness. It was denying openly, publicly, a testimony that God was not, in fact, good, was not, in fact, powerful. And so this is why the writer of Hebrews quotes this. He says, today, if you hear, don't, don't harden your heart. He was telling the writer, he was telling the people in Hebrews, these are Christians, don't harden your heart. While you're professing to be Christians, you are obviously one of the impulses of the book of Hebrews is that this entire Jewish population is really teetering on the edge of moving back towards Judaism. And the writer says, don't do that. Do not harden your heart. Do not harden your heart. There is yet a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So now, what is he talking about? What is it? That word rest keeps on popping up, right? Pops up in Psalm 95, popped up a little bit when we were talking about the background, and now it's popping up here. So rest is, this idea of rest is a comprehensive notion of rest. Um, and and it's, it is, I, I would say that a, a word that you and I might use that might be more helpful to illustrate this word is the notion of confidence. But, but it's... Um, it's a kind of rest, though, but it emanates in rest. I mean, we, we can see it. Like, for example, an illustration I use all the time, Jason makes fun of me because I use it all the time, is uh, that Jason's brother-in-law, uh, Jonathan, uh, Karis' brother, 
Um, you've never met Jonathan. Uh, Jonathan played college football. He, he's a massive guy. But at one point in time, he was a little guy. And, and, um, and a little guy one time that uh, yelled at me from across a pool, and he's bouncing up and down on the three-meter board, no vest on. He does not know how to swim. It's like 14, 15 feet of water beneath him. I lose all the oxygen in my body when I see this and go bolting down there, you know, dive in. And as soon as I come up out of the water, my plan is, as any sensible father would, is to walk, get back down that ladder. Yeah, and, and, I, and I come up out of the water, I go, and at that time, he's in the air. And, uh, and, and my son, during that time of his life, had this cartoon laugh. He sounded like a cartoon, like Scooby-Doo or something, and uh, that's how he sounded. And so all, echoing all throughout the pool, all I could hear was, <laughs> as this kid is coming straight down at me, and he lands on me, you know, comes up out of the water, and uh, before I can chastise him at all, he goes, let's do it again. And um, he had no fear because I was there. That, that kind of rest is complete confidence without fear because someone that you know will simply save you is there. But it's not just that. It's also the kind of rest that takes you away from effort. Um, yeah, I, I know that you probably, uh, along with myself, watched you know, the, the visuals uh, coming back from Maui this past week. And I mean, it's just apocalyptic. And uh, a lot of those people um, went into the ocean to escape, could not get to the boats because the boats couldn't make it past a coral reef, and so they had to stay at a certain distance. And so you can imagine the people that did make it to the boats, though. A lot of people just stayed in close to the shore and rode it out. But you can imagine the people who swam. And, and more than likely, you're swimming like that, and you're not used to swimming like that. You, you, you're, you're tired, you're scared. And you can imagine what it would feel like to, to have someone reach down and pull you up out of the water and into a boat. Your arms are too tired to move anymore, and, but you are now safe. Can you imagine the resolve and the rest that comes from that? No more effort. No more trying. Or you can imagine laboring like I remember doing my, my, myself, laboring to try to be good. Did everything in my power to be good when I was younger. Told people about Jesus, handed out tracts, jumped through all the hoops, made sure that I was chemically dependent, uh, or independent rather, uh, and made sure that you know, I was, I, I was uh, you know, as moral of a kid as I could be, just trying and trying and trying and trying and trying and trying and trying. And I distinctly remember in my... Sophomore year of high school, my, my mom walked into my room one day because she heard me. Apparently, I was, I, I was just making these noises out of just stark fear. I was sitting up in the bed. I still remember this evening. Sitting up in the bed, terrified to close my eyes because I was afraid to die. I was horrified. I was working hard. The reason, one of the reasons I became an atheist in college was this episode. We were having a revival that week. I don't know if you know this or not, but in the deep south in the 70s and 80s, we actually scheduled works of the spirit in the fall and the spring. And as a, he was very compliant. And, uh, and so, um, uh, but but uh, we, we would have these guest speakers. 
come in. These itinerant guys they just traveled around and did this. It's absolutely the worst idea in the world. And, and, um, and so um, uh, my mom sat me down with this guy. I had this guy come over to our house. And this is what he says to me. Do you remember the day you walked the aisle? I said, I've walked the aisle more days than not. I'm terrified of dying. He goes, well, if you remember that, you're fine. It was at that moment that I said to myself, oh, this isn't real. I'm getting played. I am terrified of something that doesn't actually exist. If he had just simply said, Jeff, what are you trusting in if you were to die? If you were to die today, Jeff, you might. What are you trusting in? Are you trusting that you're a good person? That you're a better person than the guy next to you? If so, you've got every reason to be afraid. Are you trusting that you are profoundly religious and moral and, 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 and uh, you, you've, you've kept yourself clean and, and saving yourself from marriage and, and you're chemically independent like every good Southern Baptist in the Deep South uh, claimed they were and, and, and all, this, all these things? Is that what you're trusting in? Because if that's the case, Jeff, you have got every reason to be horrified about death. Because if you die, Jeff, you will, in God's wrath, never enter his rest. But Jeff, if in fact you are relying solely on the work of Christ on the cross, that it is on the work of Jesus and on the resurrected Jesus' power that you are throwing all of your hope because you know you have no reason to trust in your own works. And Jeff, be of good heart. Be encouraged. Jesus will save you. Jesus is good enough and strong enough to save you from everything you're afraid of and far more. That would have been good news. I've got news for you. Jesus will save you. Jesus will keep you in his rest. He will He will draw you into his own strength. Much like that hypothetical swimmer being pulled into the boat, finally resting, breathing, looking up at the stars, realizing that they're finally safe. That's what Jesus will do for you. Jesus will be the one in the water for you so that you can joyfully and almost sillily, if that's a word, throw yourself into the deepest part of the water, fully believing that he'll catch you. That's what you want for your kids. You want for your kids that they'll live ambitious lives for the gospel. That they won't be afraid of the world. They won't craft some culture war to win but that they'll long to jump into the deepest, darkest parts of the gospel, of the world, knowing full well that Jesus will catch them. And regardless of what happens, that he'll carry them through. There's a few ways I think that we could do this. Um, first of all, is this. Uh, do what you can to fan into flame your faith in God's goodness in Jesus to you. Do whatever you can to fan into flame 
the goodness of God in Jesus to you. That's the goodness of God, His power and His provision. So I don't know about you, but, um, uh, but I love music and poetry and film and things like that. Uh, before I, I went into theology and things like that, my entire world was defined by the arts. And, um, and so the arts really mean something to me. They speak to me. I, I, I'll sit down. I, I'll, I'm, my wife, who's physics and math, uh, uh, like uh, we, we can watch a movie and walk away, and I'll say, man, did you feel that? Did you get that part of the movie? Where, and she was like, no. And uh, stop talking to me about this. And, and so, uh, but, but I, we, we see two different movies sometimes, just personality-wise. But I, I love watching things that, that, will, that, will, that will push me back towards the truths of the gospel. Music. Read the music and the, the lyrics. You guys pick great music here. Look at those lyrics. Anything that you can do to fan that into flame. Conversations with brothers and sisters. All those things. Anything that fans that into flame. Biographies. My wife loves to read Christian biographies because it just shapes her. Right? Proverbs, walk with the wise and you'll be wise. She finds these people that historically, all throughout history, have lived these gospel-centered lives. She reads them and she's shaped by them and fashioned by them. Do whatever you can to fan into the flame your faith in God's goodness to you and Jesus. Part of that is right here in our text, a little bit further down from 4, verse 9. That's cling to God's word. This is what the writer of Hebrews, instead of saying, hey, I know that we were raised on the Torah, so, but now I'm talking about Jesus. I mean, that sounds like, an, that's like the people that I grew up with in, back in the South. I remember having a guy tell me the Old Testament was man's law and the New Testament was God's law. I, my head went, right? I mean, it was amazing. I had no idea how anybody who's a Christian could think like that. Um, and, um, uh, but, but that's not what the writer of Hebrews says. The writer of Hebrews says the word of God is living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Cling to it. Cling to it. That's how you fan into flame the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself. I have one of our members at Redeemer. This is what he does every morning. He has uh, a, 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 a vision of the gospel kind of on his door. And, and he gets up in the morning. He reads that before he walks out of his room. He preaches the gospel to himself. Memorize uh, songs. Memorize scriptures. Do whatever you can to fan into flame. Secondly, is celebrate together your rest in Christ. The corporate nature of the church can't be overstated. This is why Jesus, when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, he does not say, here's how you pray, O Father or my Father. He doesn't say that. He says, Our Father. Our. He, he puts your prayer life into the context of everybody else. So you should celebrate the Sabbath like that. When you take the Lord's Supper, you are celebrating your Sabbath. You are celebrating the ultimate power and provision and goodness of God. Because here, in your hands, not your life. I mean, li our life, right? Episodes in our life can be really rugged, really difficult. 
You only imagine what some of our brothers and sisters in Maui are going through who might not be able to find their family members. That could cause them perhaps to call the goodness of God into question. But the goodness of God is not contingent upon every episode of our lives. This is why the supper is so important. Because here, here is the goodness of God, the broken body of Jesus and the poured out blood of Jesus. At the height of history, God did what it took to redeem you at his own cost. Here is his goodness. Here is his goodness. Here is his power. Here is his provision. Right here. I'm reminding myself of it by taking this supper. I'm reminding myself of what Jesus has done. I'm reminding myself that Jesus will come back and close the chapter on all the things that are bad in life. And all the good things will become true again. And I will remember that he's with me right now, even through the bad things. Which brings me to our, my, my, next, my, my next point is prepare to endure suffering. Part of the message to the Hebrews is that you have to prepare to endure suffering. There was no one in the first century who became a Christian because it was advantageous to do so. But one of my favorite little books is a tiny little set of lectures called what, how or why on earth did anyone become a Christian in the first three centuries? It's by this brilliant uh, New Testament scholar, Mark Furtado. And um, it, is, it, it is a remarkable set of lectures that details that, to, that, that there was no sensible reason for anybody to become a Christian. There was no political advantage. There was no advantage with your family. You would be shamed. It was a shame and honor culture. You'd be shamed for walking away from family heritage, from family religion. There was no state reason to do it. There was no reason to do it. So how and why in that context did Christianity grow like wildfire? It's because it was true. Because it was the rest that people longed for. But that didn't take away the suffering. And so for the first three centuries, Christians looked at each other and they expected it. Of course we'll suffer. Jesus suffered. Of course we'll suffer. He told us that. If they'll do this to me, they'll do this to you. Or if, if they're simply indifferent to me, they'll be indifferent to you. But if they love me, this is why you pray for other churches, right, every week. If they love me, they'll love you. You're that connected to Jesus. So prepare for suffering by resting in Christ, resting in the power of Christ. This is significant. <laughs> it's a significant uh, idea. Flood warning. My wife will be texting me soon. Uh, this is a, a significant idea because it's so easy to forget. I don't know about you, but if I collapse to sin, if I, or maybe even if I don't, right? If I have a really good week, I will forget to rest in Jesus. You have to constantly remind yourself. I am still in the deep end of the pool with no vest. I still need to be carried by strong arms that can navigate the water easily. I am still in need of being pulled out of the water and onto the platform where I can just lay it down and rest in the power of this boat, the power of the captain just simply carries me. I still have to remember that I'm not good. 
but that God is so profoundly good. Those kinds of ideas are really easy to forget. And those kinds of ideas are the very thing we have to remember. I hope and pray that you are found resting in the power of God. It's interesting to me that right after this text, the writer of Hebrews says this, and I love this, because he knows how hard this is. He says, strive to enter into that rest. For all of us who know, all of us who've lived a Christian life for a little bit, we go, oh, yeah. Yeah, you got to, right? This is not something you just lay back. Even you say here in preachers when I was a little kid, they say a little bit of the Christian life was like falling off a log. It was so easy and stuff like that. It's like, no, brother. I don't even know if you're a Christian if you think that. That's, this, is, this is rigorous. And rigorous for all the wrong reasons that people think typically in religion. Typically when people say, oh, man, my religion is rigorous, they say, because oh, you got to do so much. you got to do so much. This is rigorous because... We have to remember that all of our efforts, even our, even our you know, pursuits of holiness, which are necessary, all derive from this rest. Strive to enter this rest. Here in this rest, you'll find freedom. Here in this rest, you'll find strength. Here in this rest, you'll find confidence. Here in this rest, you'll find all the acceptance you've ever wanted. Here in this rest. So strive to enter into it. Be found in that. Father, in the name of Christ, I pray that my brothers and sisters and myself as well would strive to enter into the rest of Christ and bring you great glory in doing so. In the name of Jesus, amen.